The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode number 80 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. You know, it's, (laughs) even as I say it out loud, it's hard to believe this is our 80th episode. Yes, we've made it to 80 episodes. My name is Sean Rapier. I am your host, and wow, 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 what a show we have this week. My guest, Sarah Hancock, her story is a story of diagnosis, of misdiagnosis, of faith, of despair, of ultimate triumph, of hope, of so many wonderful things, lessons that I learned from her, and I'm just so excited for you to hear it. It is a phenomenal story, and Sarah is absolutely amazing. And this week in my Latter-day Life, I'll tell you a little bit about feeling inadequate, as we all do. It's all coming up, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today it is my privilege to be in the home of my amazing guest, who has such an incredible story to tell. She reached out to me with an email, and when I read just the synopsis of her story, I was so enthralled I had to meet her. We're here in her home. Sarah Price Hancock, welcome to Latter-day Lives. Thank you so much for coming to San Diego. This is awesome. I'm so happy to be with you. I was born and raised here in San Diego. I'm actually a third-generation San Diegan. Wow. Um, My great-grandparents moved out here, and my great-grandfather was actually the branch president in San Diego for more than a decade. Wow. Um, Closer, I think, to 15 or 18 years. So it was exciting because he was... um, they were able to host a lot of the general authorities who came. So my grandma told stories of sitting on Heber J. Grant's lap and playing with his beard (laughs) when he came to visit. And so it's just been, um, it's been fun to live in San Diego with so many people who knew my family growing up. And you still have family here in the area. I do. My grandparents, my parents live right next door, my uncle and aunt, but everyone else has moved away. Let's talk about your childhood. You grew up in San Diego. Were you classic California girl? I'm no, actually, I really wasn't. I <laughs> you'll have to excuse me because I live with a brain injury, mm-hmm. and that brain injury erased thirty six years of my life. yeah, so i can I can tell you what I remember reading in my journals, yeah, because I have thirty eight volumes of journals. Wow, but I don't have memories of my childhood or like growing up. Yeah. So let's jump forward to, to where you want to jump forward. Cause I don't know the best way to tell your story because it is a little bit different. It's weird. <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to use the word weird. I think it's, it's very interesting. That's for yeah. sure. So why don't we jump forward to the way you like to tell your story and I'll just ask questions. So I'm the eldest of three kids. Yep. I have two younger brothers and mm-hmm. from Everything I can gather, we were pretty roughhousing, you know, fun-loving kids. <laughs> We've got some amazing pictures from, like, Halloweens and 
activities. My mom is just absolutely amazing in her creative way to make costumes and and she's honestly one of my heroes. She really knows how to make awesome. make amazing things. So what happened was when I was young I had a lot of allergies. A mm. lot of allergies. And so many allergies that when they did the allergy test on the back of my back, my doctor eyes about popped out of his head and they were having an allergy conference downstairs and they literally paraded all of the allergists past my back so that they could look at the welts on my back because they were so big they'd like merged with each other and they couldn't they couldn't like measure to see and the only thing i wasn't allergic to was cockroaches which makes you wonder how they (laughs) test you for cockroaches didn't want to think about that but so I had a lot of allergies, and so I was constantly getting bronchitis and constantly getting um, sinus infections. And so I was put on a lot of antibiotics growing up. Mm. Well, so as a child, I started having problems with anxiety probably when I was like fourth grade or so. We didn't recognize it as anxiety. We all have, you know, sure. concerns and stuff. And honestly, when I think of the symptoms I experience now, I think all too often we want to diagnose or what we call pathologize human experience. And so many times we have emotions that humans have and we're a little too eager to slap a label on it. Hmm. But I experienced symptoms of anxiety. And as I got older, um, towards my teenage years, like 13 or 14, I started having problems with depression. And it was a depression that I was able to hide during school. And I was able to really enjoy myself in school. But it was kind of strange, because almost like people that you know, who have Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. as the sun went down, then the sadness would set in. And so there were so many times when I just cried myself to sleep as as a teenager, and I couldn't understand the darkness. It was just a really bizarre feeling, very heavy. And But I kept going through, and I um, was accepted to Rick's College. I went there, had an absolute blast, and I began interpreting for American Sign Language when I was there awesome. with my dear friend Laurel. And then um, graduated from Ricks. I started having problems with like what I, what psychiatry refers to as hypomania. So it's mm. hypomania is mania is where the mood is so elevated through the roof, and you start making really bizarre decisions and very rapid flight of ideas. It's like your brain has been is a ping pong ball that was slammed in a closet by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Just <laughs> back and forth, you know? That's such a great, great explanation of it. That's kind of what the mania is like. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, the interesting thing is there's no real consensus on these diagnoses. And and if you if I were to share this experience with one psychiatrist, he'd say, oh, you have ADD. If I were to share it with someone else, they'd say, oh, you have mania. But it's because there's like no specific. Yeah, no consensus. Yeah, there's no consensus. There's no, there's no test that tells you a specific diagnosis. The brain is the most advanced thing that Heavenly Father's created, yeah. right? Yeah. And it in-houses our spirit and our body. And, right. and it somehow interweaves and 
and works everything together. So I started experiencing symptoms of hypomania, and and I I mean I kicked it into high gear. I was taking like 20 credits at a time, and I was teaching leadership programs with Teton Mountain Student Leadership, and I was the activities chair, and I was teaching Sunday school, and I just had the time of my life. It was an absolute so blast. So you were taking advantage of your hypomania. I totally was. So is part of that not sleeping? Is that part of? Yeah, that part of it is not sleeping as much as you probably should, but the interesting thing is it's not because you don't want to sleep it's just because your body doesn't need to sleep so you won't get tired so it's kind of a strange experience um, because everyone around you is starting to get tired and falling asleep during movies and stuff like that and you're like gee I've been up since four this morning and now it's 11 maybe I should think about maybe going to sleep well I'm not tired and I've got homework I think I'll just do that instead you know wow yeah so it's just kind of how my body was reacting. And it's so I graduated from Ricks. I moved over to BYU. I spent a semester there and chose to go into English. Mm-hmm. And then I had wanted to serve a mission since I was six because that's when my dad was the mission leader. So we always had sister missionaries in our ward. It was awesome. And so I turned 21. I literally was counting down the days probably since I was four. Turned 21, received my call to serve Spanish speaking. And I honestly thought I was going to go on a signing mission because I had learned so much sign language that I had become an interpreter at, mm. at Rick's. Yeah. And I was interpreting for classes and I was interpreting for all the devotional. So I served for 18 months in yeah. Spanish speaking. Were you still going through your symptoms of mania at this time? Uh, this time, no, it was very interesting. My symptoms had evolved, so it wasn't so much mania. You know, the, it, the body was ebbing and flowing a lot. My, my symptoms were never static. They were never constant in one area. And so, but on my mission, I experienced a lot of depression. I had a lot of really difficult companions, yeah. I had a lot of, you know, it's a mission life, right? So you're right. learning to live with people. I'd I, never had sisters. Suddenly I mean, it's hard I, enough. <laughs> it's hard enough for anybody. You know, I served a right? mission. It's hard for me. I didn't have things going on. Oh, well, I mean, we I, all have things going on. We all do. I didn't know yeah. I had things going on. <laughs> well, and that was my next question was, did when, going back to your time at Rick's, your time at BYU, and then, and then going on your mission, you know, you're experiencing mania, you're experiencing depression. At any point, did anybody notice and mention it to you? Did anybody say at any point, hey, Sarah, or, is everything okay? Well, you know, I look at my journals, and I saw an, an entry when I was at Rick's. It was shortly after my best friend, who I considered my boyfriend, left on his mission. Mm. And I felt like my heart had just gone to Italy it was <laughs> That's a great way to put it. I, I didn't really know how to cope. And I had a friend who lived with depression and she said, I really think you need to go to a counselor. Mm. And in my journal, I wrote, ha, can you imagine what would I tell my parents if I told them that I went to see a counselor? Because 
I couldn't. Really? I, you have to understand that I grew up making fun of people with mental illness. So really? this is like the ultimate bad karma Studio C video. <laughs> I'm living it right here. <laughs> did you did you just feel like there was a stigma that might be attached to it if you did, or did you just think you didn't need the help? Um, a little bit of both. I I felt I needed help, but I really sincerely believe that what I really needed was I just needed someone to listen. My mission was interesting because I serve 18 months Spanish speaking and I'm getting ready to go home and my mission president asked me to extend. I extended two months and they put me in the sign language program. Did you really? So you did end up using your sign language. How awesome is that? You know, it was really a testimony to know that Heavenly Father knows exactly where his children are and what they need. That's amazing. The very first person that I taught was from a Spanish-speaking country that could not read in English. Mm. We didn't have the Book of Mormon in sign language, but he could read in Spanish. Yeah. And he had learned American sign language. And so it was just a really strong testimony to me that Heavenly Father knew my needs and knew this brother's needs as that well. That was beautiful. What a neat experience. It was fun. So you came back to BYU after your mission. Yeah. And you continued on. I continued on for about three months yeah. during that time and found fantastic guy so excited about we were totally dating and we're talking about marriage and then he dumped me oh geez and that's when i had my first mental health problem okay um then a year later i was talking seriously. I like having all the BYU fun experiences and doing all the social stuff. I'd met another guy, and we were talking marriage. My brain was getting really foggy because at this time I w- I had pneumonia really bad, and so they'd put me on another antibiotic. Mm. And so I started experiencing additional weirdness, but we couldn't really understand why because we didn't know what was causing it. He broke up with me. When yeah. I went, I was bawling my eyes out. When I went downstairs, there was this woman dressed in pioneer attire sitting on my roommate's bed. And I was like, what are you doing in here? And she just looked at me and she said, I know your heart is broken, but you're going to be okay. Hmm. And I said, but my life is destroyed. My, this man that I was going to get married to, hmm. that I absolutely loved, he doesn't want to get married to me. And she looked at me and she said, Sarah, if I could make it across the plains and bury my child in a shallow frozen grave, you can make it through this. And my roommate came down into the bedroom and she's like, who are you talking to? And I looked and the lady wasn't there anymore. And I was, like, confused. Yeah. Because she was dressed in pioneer clothes. Yeah, I, would, I would guess this was confusing. <laughs> yeah. She was dressed in pioneer clothes, and she'd given me this beautiful message, but I was already heartbroken, and I couldn't yeah. stop crying, and my roommates were really scared because I was crying, like, gut-wrenching cry of despair crying. Wow. And so the next day, I went onto campus at BYU, 
And it was really weird. The entire campus had changed overnight. I walked into the quad and there were covered wagons all around and they'd built fire camps, fires, and I'm walking around talking to people. They're cold because it's snowing and I'm like, oh my goodness, do you want some warm clothes? You know, oh, you're trying to wash your clothes. I can take them back to my apartment and wash them. And like, oh, you need matches. I got matches back at the place. You know, so I'll go get them for you. And so I woke up in the hospital in a straight jacket. I was in a straight jacket for most two days. And the, I don't remember how I got there. Is this, this experience you had, because memory loss is part of your story, Yeah. is this experience you had seeing all of the pioneers on BYU campus, is this something you remember, or is this something someone remembers you telling them? No, I do remember you that. You remember this part. Yeah. And I, I've told this story so many times that yeah. that's probably part of it, too. Yeah. But I just, it was so... It was like I just walked onto a movie set or something. I always, it was so weird. Do you know how you got to the hospital? I have no idea. I, I, I went to BYU uh, several years ago and asked them. I asked the police department if they had any records on me, and they did. They did? Yeah, so yeah. I asked for all of my records. Was there anything about that experience? Um, they had multiple experiences yeah. where they took me from campus to the well, hospital. I'm, I'm sure that if, you know, I mean, I'm an average student at BYU, and here's a wonderful young woman talking to people who aren't there Yeah. about their pioneer experiences and offering to wash their clothes. Right. I mean, I'd want to get you help. Like, that makes sense, right? Yeah, right. Who, who is she talking to? Yeah, that is amazing. That's my friend, Parley P. Pratt, just right here. <laughs> <laughs> We're buddy, buddy. <laughs> wow, Sarah. Yeah, so it was really it was really interesting. And the, what was going on was I kept telling the doctor, like I looked in my chart, because I got my chart from uh, the Utah Valley Hospital, and I've been collecting my records because I, I want to gather everything so I can actually write my autobiography. Yeah. But it's very difficult to write your autobiography when you don't know what happened <laughs> to your life. It's like doing a historical fiction novel, right? You're just plowing through all your own journals and reading them like it's someone else's uh, handwriting, and you're, you're looking at all of your photo <laughs> albums playing, where's Waldo? You know, oh, look, that's me. Okay, I was there. It's happened, you know. <laughs> And so pulling See, I together everything. This. Like I can't imagine what that's like. So you spent two days in the hospital in a straitjacket. You don't remember it. No, I don't. And and then where did this well, go from there? They put me on medication. My mm. body could not tolerate the medication. It was like the window to my soul was opened and all of hell's dominions and minions were suddenly able to converse with me for the next 12 years. So I had people telling me how and why to kill myself 24-7 unless I was asleep. And then when I was asleep, I just had pure nightmares. I have never watched a rated R movie in my life. I've never watched anything violent and I was seeing visions of just pure terror. Oh, Sarah. And I, I can't explain it. I can only explain it that when your brain and your body are on fire, when they're neurotoxic, I think you become, I think the veil becomes a lot thinner. 
for good and for bad in some ways. I the problem was once they put me on medication, it was no longer good. I no longer I could no longer I could no longer feel the spirit, even though I was reading my scriptures and going to the temple every week. I could no longer feel the spirit, and I think that's very difficult because I think all too often when we have people in our wards who live with these symptoms and we want to encourage them, when we try to offer supportive things like read your scriptures and listen to positive music and listen to the counsel of the prophets. Those are very important things, but the burden is so heavy that oftentimes it's just not enough. Yeah. So being able to sit with someone, even if you're just sitting there in silence, or coming over to their house and maybe, I mean, when my brain is on fire, I cannot process information. So what happened was I kept telling the doctors I did not have this problem until I got the pneumonia. And they're like, you can't get schizophrenia from pneumonia. (laughs) And I was like, but I didn't see anything until I had pneumonia. Anyway, fast forward. Over the next 12 years, I cycled through 37 different combinations of medications. They were trying to get the, quote, cocktail balanced, right? Yeah. And it was, it was horrific, honestly, because what we didn't understand was my illness was caused from toxic encephalopathy, which means that my brain was on fire because it had too much poison in it. And so when they start putting chemicals into it, that just adds to the toxic load. So was that something that was caused, or, or is that something natural? Was that something from all the medications when you were young? It compounded it, yes. Okay. So what happened was everyone is born with bacteria and fungus, yeast, in their gut. We mm-hmm. all have it. Yep. And so when you, it, the candida is in your stomach, and it's there to ferment your food, and then... Um, when you take any kind of antibiotic and you're not concurrently prescribed an antifungal or you continue to eat foods that feed candida while you're on the antibiotic, it pushes your gut more fungal. So what happened was my candida in my stomach just kept outgrowing, outgrowing, outgrowing my stomach and it moved into my liver. Once it moved into my liver, it drove all my food cravings and candida is interesting because it's an organism. So if, mm. you, fo- if you feed it, it's going to poop and fart out a bunch of byproducts. Oh, my gosh. Candida poops and farts out 20 different alcohol byproducts. So even though I had never had any alcohol, I was a full-on, full-blown alcoholic because it poops and farts out acetone, aldehydes, 20 different alcohols. So here I was essentially walking around drunk because my body couldn't metabolize the amount of alcohol that my body was producing. I have never heard of this. I, this is so amazing to me. It's interesting because they, they, back in the olden days, before the psychiatric medications were invented, they would go through and they would systematically figure out what was causing someone's symptoms. Sometimes it was 
nutritional deficiencies. Sometimes it was toxicity, like too much copper. Sometimes it was candida. I mean, there's a fantastic book by a Princeton doctor who identifies 27 different causes of schizophrenia. And they're all things that you can take, like, just non-psychiatric medication to address. Just physical. Yeah, so the psychiatric medication, what people oftentimes don't realize is we experience these symptoms because it's a fire alarm for our body. Our, fi- your, our body's fire alarm is going off. Mm. So when we take medication to force the brain to work in a very specific way, in essence, we're taking the batteries out of the fire alarm because the fire alarm's too annoying and, and loud. Rather and than putting out the fire. Rather than putting out the fire. And so wow. that's what happened to me. So the doctors kept throwing medications and medications at me. And I grew up with a mother who's a very brittle diabetic. And her doctors had saved her life multiple times. And so I had this confidence in my doctor that I could just go back and tell him what the new medication had caused and he could fix it. And so they just kept trying for 12 years to mm. fix things. And finally, my doctor... I became catatonic because my brain was so on fire. And catatonic means that you stop responding to the world around you. So even if you're hungry and there's an orange sitting in front of you, you cannot figure out how to pick up the orange and peel it. It doesn't matter. You're so starving. You can't figure out how to peel it. And so I think a lot of times we get scared of people that live with these symptoms because we don't they don't make sense to us. The behaviors that they cause make no sense to us. Yeah. And we don't recognize that it is, there is a very organic cause, whether it's the person went through tremendous trauma, which sent cortisol through their body and altered processes in their body, or you know, whatever the cause could be. Yeah. We have to identify the underlying cause and treat the underlying cause and not just mask the symptoms. Where, where were you living during this thir- 13 years? I was living here in San Diego. So were you, did you move back in with your parents? I did move in with my parents initially, but my behavior was so far off the charts that for safety reasons, they had to let me move out. So I lived in a variety of group homes, some of which were extremely abusive. It was difficult because, you know, you're used to living your standards and suddenly you're mixed in with people that don't have the same standards and are just as sick as you are. Right. So it can be very difficult to live in these group homes. So So we go through, you've talked about it 13 years like it was a finite amount of time. Yeah. There must have been some kind of change at the end of this 13 years. Well, You're not that still 12 in years. This yeah, what state. happened was in 2008, my doctor sat me down and said, Sarah, we, they haven't invented the medication yet that's going to help you. And I was like, what the heck, dude? I've been so diligent in taking everything you've thrown at me, and now you're telling me they haven't even invented what's supposed to help me? And so... I walked away from that doctor's appointment. And I was like, well, if you can't figure it out, I'm going to show you. <laughs> I was just that kind of person. That's funny. And so I started looking. Like, it was the very first time I actually took a proactive stance in my care. Previously, it was very passive, always taking the medication, just going to counseling, 
you know, and this time I was like, you know what? I got to find other people that are living with this illness. Cause until that point, any other person I'd ever met that lived with those kinds of symptoms, I either met them in the back of a police car. I met them in the ICU unit of the hospital, or I met them in the institution where I'd been shoved for 13 months. Maybe not a great place to help each other. Not exactly. Yeah, no. right. <laughs> but I found some organizations that had what they call peer support specialists. And I took a class uh, from a peer support specialist who actually had the same diagnosis as me. And she had her own place. She had a boyfriend. And she had a job. And I was like, how are you doing this? Because you take your medicine, right? Your medicine knocks you out for 12 to 14 hours. And then when you awake, it's not because you can function. It's just because your eyes are open. And so here she is working, and so I was like, how do you do this? And by this time, I'd heard everyone. I mean, I'd literally had people at church. I'd come in and I'd sit down and they'd get up and move. And I'm an optimistic person. So I'd be like, oh, they had to go to the bathroom or, oh, you know, so-and-so just came and they wanted to go sit with them. But this one day I was sitting at church and the person got up and they sat right behind me. And the person I said, why did you move? And the girl said, well, didn't, this is a singles ward. Well, didn't you know she's schizophrenic and she's getting shock treatments? And I just sat there. I didn't even know that girl. And I realized that the ward was talking about me. And I was the gossip. I was the schizophrenic. And that's all people could see me. They couldn't see me as the child of God. They couldn't see me as the return missionary or as the college graduate. They couldn't see me as the girl who loves to laugh and sing musicals at the top of her lungs or the sister. They couldn't see me as the trilingual person. They could just see this crazy girl sitting on the pew next to them who maybe smelled weird because she couldn't even think clearly enough to take a shower. I can't imagine, Sarah. I can't imagine, but I hear your pain, and I see it. Yeah. But thankfully, I'm not there anymore. Yeah. I, my dad, I had a really... This is what happened. After my doctor told me he, they hadn't invented the whatever yet, I went to my grandpa's house for a BYU football game. There was so much noise. It just stressed my brain out. It kicked my sensory processing disorder in, and I just had a complete meltdown, like you'd see with someone who lives with autism. Mm -hmm. And my dad took me home, and on the way home, he said, you know, I said, Dad, I can't live like this anymore. I don't think he understood that I was talking about suicide. But I said, I can't live like this anymore. I just can't do it. It's too hard. And he said, for the first time, he said, Sarah, I, d I don't have any answers. And it was actually such a relief to have someone else tell me that they didn't have answers and instead of trying to constantly fix it. Mm. And he said, I don't have any answers, but I know someone who does. And I was like, oh. And he said, Heavenly Father knows. Wow. And I was so torqued when he said that. I was like, well, I sure wish he'd tell me how. Because <laughs> this entire time I'd been... 
practicing what I preached on my mission. I'd been reading my scriptures every day. Exactly. I'd been doing everything I'd been taught. I was even working at the temple. And yeah, that may may have seemed like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, it's not like I wasn't seeking it. It's not like I've been, haven't been asking you for the past more than a decade (laughs) how to figure this out. Of course. But I got to thinking about it and I went back to my patriarchal blessing, and it distinctly talks about how we are taught by our Heavenly Father before we came to this earth, how we are taught everything we need to know to succeed in this life, and how as we draw ourselves closer to our Heavenly Father, that veil will become more thin, and we will remember, the Spirit will bring those things Mm. to our memory. And I was like, you know what? Heavenly Father did not send us here to fail. Mm. And my Savior did not willingly give himself up in Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, in the scriptures, it talks that he, it says that Christ sorrowed unto death. Mm. He talked about, he thought of suicide. He sorrowed unto death. He asked his apostles to watch and wait. Mm. If they would have known what he was going to go through, They would have watched. They would have waited. They would have been very diligent. But they were tired. They'd had their own lives. And they didn't know what he was going through. And so they fell asleep. And I got to thinking about all of this. And I was like, if Heavenly Father has enough confidence in me to let me go through this, I better figure out how to feel confidence in myself. If my Savior had enough confidence in me that I could do this life, I have to tap into that. <laughs> and I started looking for ways to better understand and better see Heavenly Father's hand in my life. And I found a practice that's very simple. You just write down three things that went well, but then you have to explain why you feel it went well. And so for 90 days, I wrote out three things every day that went well. When I very first started, I couldn't think of a single thing that was going well in my life. I mean, it was pretty bad. I had just actually moved out of a group home and closed it by calling Adult Protective Services. It was that bad. They came no and kidding. closed it. Oh, my gosh. It was that abusive. How horrible. And so I'm like... What the heck is going real in my life? Yeah, but you found three things. You I got found, into the groove. I got into the groove, and eight months later, I was at my doctor's appointment or thereabouts, and he was like, what's changed? Because we haven't changed your medicine in eight months. This is the longest you've gone at the same dose on the same meds. And I realized that it was because for the first time in my life, even though I'd repeated the young woman's theme every Sunday growing up, even though I'd sang I'm a child of God every Sunday, or not every Sunday, but, you know, growing up, for the first time I actually had a testimony Mm. that I was a child of God and that he really had sent me here and that he has confidence in me and in all of us. Mm. And that is what changed so fast forward, I started putting pieces back together in my life. I started having confidence that I could actually do these things that everyone was telling me I couldn't do. And I was able to 
genuinely feel the confidence that our Heavenly Father has in each of us. He knows that we're here for a reason and we can do it. And I got, in, I got a scholarship through the State um, Department of Rehabilitation. I got my graduate degree in rehabilitation counseling. My teachers saw enough value in my work that they hired me to teach. After I graduated, I taught for four years. But I, I kept having problems with my symptoms. And finally, I realized that the medication was doing a lot more harm than because I was having major balance issues. I was having major, like this with my hand, doing yeah. weird things. This is called tardive dyskinesia. I was having major problems with all of these things mm. that would wax and wane with toxicity, you know? Yeah. And so I decided that I needed to find a doctor that could help me get off of the medication. Mm. So initially... I transitioned from the medication to micronutrition, but what I didn't know was that because my gut was too fungal, the micronutrition actually fed that. Oh, my. And it kind of acted like a parasite. It was just like, oh, we've been so hungry. Thank you for giving us more food. <laughs> so then I finally found a doctor who was actually a member of the church. And he was like, after he heard my medical history, he said, I really think that your problem is because of candida. And keep in mind, I just graduated with my master's degree in rehab counseling with a certificate in psychiatric <laughs> rehabilitation. So I've taken all the psychopharm classes. I've taken the diagnostics classes. And this wacko doctor is telling me that my illness is caused by a fungal infection in my liver. I laughed him to scorn. <laughs> I totally did. But then he's like, because what had happened was I'd gone for a really long time without too many bad symptoms, and then I had a kidney infection. Mm. By the third day of the antibiotic on the kidney infection, I was seeing my great-grandma, who'd passed away in 86. I was seeing her picture that I'd uploaded to Family Search. She was driving behind me on the way home from church. <laughs> I was like, something's not right. Something's wrong yeah, here. Something's not quite right. <laughs> so I was like, those weird glasses and the cute Easter dress. You know, this is yeah, something. That's probably not right. not right. So he's like, your symptoms get worse with antibiotics. I said, yes, they do. He's huh. like, you need to get an antifungal protocol. So he radically altered my diet. He took away everything that tasted good. Yeah. So for the past two years, I've been eating nothing but vegetables, a little bit of meat, fish, beans, rice, and potatoes. And I've been on a very regimented uh, antifungal protocol every four hours for two years. Wow. But the interesting thing is within... A week, the psychosis went away. Really? W within a week, like, my anxiety dropped. Within a week, my mood was coming back into, like, where I could actually say, no, I feel like I shouldn't be yelling at my husband right now. <laughs> Let me rein it in a little bit. Sorry, honey, you know. And so it's just... The longer I've been on this diet and the longer I've been yeah. on the antifungal protocol, the more I've been able to control things. So when the doctors told me that I couldn't get 
I couldn't get schizophrenia from pneumonia. They were right. But what they didn't know is you can get it from the antibiotics if you've already had too many. That is so amazing, Sarah. Yeah. And so your life has done a complete 180. It's completely changed. Yeah, I have no more psychiatric symptoms at all. But the problem is that the treatments that they had me on caused neuroleptic-induced Parkinson's, Mm. which is now what I have. The shock treatments um, destroyed my blood-brain barrier, so I can't go into buildings that have any kind of water damage because... The mold in the air that you, everyone else just breathes through and their brain is protected by their blood-brain barrier. But for me, I walk into a building and you can see this, but it deteriorates like really fast and I'll even stop breathing. So I have not been able to go to church. I have not been able to go to the temple in a long time because the last three times I've gone to the temple I've stopped breathing before I Mm. could even change my white clothes and it's just because I don't have a blood brain barrier or I don't have a strong blood brain barrier because I have soft lesions that were burst because of the shock treatment. Because you went through shock treatment, which we yeah. didn't really talk about, but that yeah. was a big part of... Yeah, I had 116 bilateral brief pulse shock treatments. Yeah, wow. That's what caused the 36 years of memory loss. So you have 36 years of your life completely just gone. Yeah, and, you know, from a cultural perspective, we know that we're supposed to learn from our experiences, right? So I'm thinking, well, gee, my need does that mean I'm going to go through all of this again? <laughs> like, how am I supposed to learn from what I can't remember? So, but Sarah, I, I, it speaks to the importance of keeping a journal. Oh, yeah, because you're able to go back and read and piece things together. Yeah. And some will create memory. Not really, but no? I mean, I've created memories from reading my journal. Right, they don't right. trigger memories. Sure, so, right. Like, but creating I can tell a story, you, yeah, you kind of know can, what happened. I can tell you the story the exact same way every single time. Yeah, because all you know is what it says in your journal. Exactly. My husband's like, you tell the story like almost using the same words. I'm like, well, basically reciting my journal. <laughs> That's amazing. Sarah, we're, we're pretty close to time. Your story is so un believably strong and amazing and inspiring and sad and painful and beautiful and the emotions I have and that I'm sure our listeners have right now it's incredible Um, tell us a little bit about your life right now while we've got a few minutes left well my life right now I'm working on I'm trying to find work that I can do from home so I've started a podcast mm. called the Emotional Self-Reliance Podcast, where I share my own journey and I share the wellness tools that I learned along the way, because I've discovered that all too often we're willing to just say someone has a diagnosis and just leave it at that and not provide them with the tools. And I think all too often we're taking human experiences and slapping labels on them yeah. when really what we need to do is reach out in empathy and and just listen to people yeah. and find out about them. I do a lot of research specific to ECT. I'm trying to work on how we can 
regulate it because it's not regulated and they don't even have the standard operating procedures. Mm. So like the informed consent process, they'll tell you one thing and quote statistics and then they'll use a different method on you when they do the ECT. So it's like talking, if people talk about ECT, it's like talking car safety and one person's talking about an Audi and the other person's talking about a Pinto. Right. <laughs> completely, <laughs> completely different. Right. And so, tell us a little bit about, I got to meet a very special man a few minutes back. Oh, yes. Tell us about your husband. My sweetheart. Excuse me. It's all right. I met David um, in 2010 in the singles ward, and he is a brain cancer survivor. He's actually had a quarter of his brain removed, and it was the same part of my brain that was damaged severely. And so we started talking about, you know, after a single conference, we just started talking. And he was telling me about some of these medications he'd been on. And they were some of the same medications I'd been on because they use anti-seizure medications to stop seizures and they also use them to rein in bipolar symptoms. Mm. And I was like, you were on that medication? And he's like, yeah. I was like, you sleep for 18 hours a day when you are awake. It's just because your eyes are open. He's like, how do you know that? I'm like, how do you not know how I know this? You know. And so he kept asking me how I knew these things, but I just wanted to hear his story. And then at the end of the story, he's like, how did you know about all of those meds? And I said, in my head, I'm thinking, I want him to get to know me before he finds out about my diagnosis. Yeah. And I realized that I really was interested in this guy and I didn't want to get more interested in him to just have him walk away. So I was just going to tell him straight out up front about mm. my diagnosis. Yeah. And I told him and he looked at me and he said, so you're still Sarah. Oh, I love that, Sarah. I was speechless. He was the f first person that had ever said that to me. Mm. And I knew right then that he was the one for me. Yeah. <laughs> I went, yeah. Oh, that's and awesome. 17 days later, we had dated every single day after that. 17 days later, he proposed. And I was like, dude, what took you so long, buddy? <laughs> Well, the spirit in your home is incredible. I'll just tell you that. I have so enjoyed being here. I want to finish up with two questions for you. There's one that we ask all of our guests. But before I get to that, um, many of our listeners, uh, maybe probably all of us, know someone in our ward, in our neighborhood, at work, in our family, who struggles with some type of mental struggle. Yeah. And we're not sure what to do. Yeah. Give us some advice from the other side of it. I think what people like myself need is they need someone to just smile and be willing to say, you know what, I really don't know how to help you. But if you could give me a window into what you're going through, maybe we can brainstorm some ideas. Because mm. what's going to work for me 
might not work for someone else, right? right? Everyone has unique situations. And I think we also need to understand that when we tell people, oh, give me a call if you need anything, a lot of times we're struggling so bad, we can't even figure out how to pick up that phone. Or mm. We can't even figure out how to verbalize what we need because we can't identify it ourselves. So if someone shows up, like I've had visitor t- visiting teachers show up and they'll be looking at my sink <laughs> And they'll just, like, we'll turn on some music and start doing dishes. And it's it takes a load off my shoulders. Yeah. I've probably been looking at those dishes for a long time, trying to figure out how to turn on the water. Oh, and wow. And they will stop and, and help me with that. And that's very helpful. But again, it's you really have to ask the person, you know, is it okay if we do dishes together? Or is it okay if... And don't just assume, oh, I'm just going to go over and do her dishes. That's awesome. <laughs> awesome advice. And we also... I have a Facebook group that I created for members of the church. It's called Support for Latter-day Saints with Mental Health Concerns. And this Facebook group is not only just for people living with symptoms, but it's for our family members mm. and for any of the auxiliary leaders or priesthood holders that want to better serve and get to know people with living with mental illness. So any of the listeners can get into our group by answering our screening questions yes. so they're not going <laughs> to sell us any Ray-Bans. And, <laughs> and then um, ask those kinds of questions. And I mean, we have more than 2,500 international members and awesome. we brainstorm solutions for people all the time. And give us the name of that group again. It's called Support for Latter-day Saints with Mental Health Concerns. Perfect. I love it. Oh, Sarah, this has been one of my favorite, favorite interviews ever. I'm so glad we had the chance to talk. Oh. I'd love to ask you questions for another hour, but we're about at time. That's okay. So I'm going to ask you the same question, and I'm so excited to hear your thoughts on this, the same question we ask all of our guests. What does being a member of the church mean to you? I knew you were going to ask me this question, and I've been <laughs> pondering this for a long time. I think that being a member of the church means it's literally the only way that we can really understand why we are here on this earth. It's what gives us perspective. It's what helps us know that we really did live with our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mother before we came to this earth. It lets us know that they loved us so much, they wanted us to learn and grow, and they have confidence in us that we can. And they created this amazing world for us, that we can be here. It lets us know that we can have a personal relationship with our Savior, Mm. who loves us so much, he was willing to go through everything that we could ever go through. And when no one else is there to listen, he is there at our side at oftentimes sitting with his hand on our knee, listening to sometimes those prayers we can't even utter. Mm. It lets us know that this life really is just a speck on uh, the entire eternity, right? Mm -hmm. And that everything that happened to us will be worth it we just keep trying. I would call you a 
motivator, a survivor, a thriver more than a survivor. Thank you. And maybe you didn't know it for a long time, but you are a beautiful, beautiful daughter of God. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. It was a pleasure. And my special thanks to my new friend, Sarah, for having me in her home and sitting down and talking with me and her wonderful husband, David, who is such a nice guy, just a good, good man. And I so appreciate them letting me into their home and the spirit that was there was just a wonderful experience. Uh, This week in my Latter-day life, in fact, normally my Latter-day life is something completely separate from the conversation, but this week they actually tie together. I thought I'd give you a little bit of background, feel a little bit vulnerable sharing this, but hopefully it'll be of some value. Um, When we started the show a year and a half ago, boy, I got this strong feeling one Saturday that uh, I should do this podcast. And my initial thought was, okay, we're going to do the podcast. And what the podcast will be, will be conversations with my friends who are comedians and actors and artists and writers. And it'll be fun and fluffy and nothing deep and and whatever. That's going to be it. And then the third episode came along and my dear friend, Michael Berkland, Mike B., who is just the funniest guy I know, I thought we'd be laughing through the entire time. And as we started talking about uh, his drug abuse and some of the things that he went through and his struggles and trials, the episode got very serious and very intense. And to this day is one of my favorites. But when it happened, I actually went upstairs and told my wife after it was done, I said, I can't, I can't put this up there. That's not what the show is. It's not serious. You know, it's supposed to be just light and fluffy. And after a lot of prayer and a lot of thought, I put it put it up there and it's still one of our listeners favorites and it's one of my favorites and since then a lot of different types of people have come along and some of our interviews have been just fun and just nothing but laughter but others have dealt with divorce and suicide and drug addiction and whatnot and each time that I'm about to interview a guest like when when I had Cindy Threadgold on to talk about losing her son or her husband Greg who also had mental health issues uh, some similar to Sarah Each time, I've gotten this panic, but never so much as I did this week, as I pulled up to Sarah's house, I sat in front and I suddenly just had this overwhelming doubt that I am not equipped to have this conversation and I'm an imposter. Why am I? What gives me the right to sit down and to try to tell or help someone tell their story this way? And I felt very inadequate. That's the word I would describe. And so I sat in my car for a minute. And I just prayed that Heavenly Father would give me whatever I needed to be able to do it. And I'm a fairly confident person. I do big sales meetings all the time. I speak in front of people. I do stand-up comedy. I, you know, I don't worry about that. But in this regard, I've never gone to school for journalism. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I came up with this idea for this podcast. And I felt like I was inadequate and an imposter, but the Spirit overcame me right before I walked in and whispered to me that I was to be a vehicle. And so I did. And I think that for many of us, we get called all of a sudden, whether it's to be a Sunday school teacher over some kids we don't know or who might be tricky and a little bit difficult, or to be a bishop or a Relief Society president, or just to be uh, a minister to someone we don't know. Whatever it is, I think all of us sometimes feel like, well, that's not me. I'm an imposter. 
I'm inadequate. I can't do this. Why didn't you have someone else to do it? Uh, do this thing. And for me, I know that there are uh, 10,000 other people who can do this podcast better than I can. But for whatever reason, the Lord has given me the uh, inspiration to do it, and I've been so blessed. And as I left, I sat in my car again, and I said a quick prayer to Heavenly Father, thanking Him. Because if I hadn't gone through, I would not have met Sarah and her husband, David. And I've met so many of you because of this podcast, and I have so many friends. I was texting Weston Wilson, had his big fight uh, last week, and I was wanting to go to it, and we ended up having a work dinner, but we were texting back and forth the day of his fight. And so many of you who have been guests or just our listeners who reach out on a regular basis, and I'm so grateful. Sometimes, even though we feel inadequate, we are not because of Christ, we are not because of God, and when He calls us to do something— Even though we feel inadequate, it is to us to step up, and I'm so grateful that I had that experience. And again, I know plenty of other people will interview Sarah, and yeah, they may do a better job, but I did it my way, and I'm grateful that I did because I made a new friend and had an incredible experience, and that's what's happening this week in my latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Uh, We continue to grow. We really appreciate it. If you do get the thought to share this with somebody, I would be really grateful, especially on social media. We've had a lot of people this past week who have shared uh, shared us on Facebook or on Instagram, uh, Twitter, all those things we can be found there. So until next week, when we have another fantastic episode, please remember, as always, there is a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>